In late fall of 2015, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival announced their new project called Play On, a project to create, uh, adapt, translate all of Shakespeare's plays in, and create new translations and adaptations of them. And it created such a furor that we, the Reduced Shakespeare Company, got people on social media from all around the world going, oh my God, what do you guys think? And so we recorded a podcast about it, knowing nothing about it except what we had heard and read. And to us, it seemed like much ado about nothing. And we wanted, we said, why don't we just wait until we see what Play On becomes, shall we? Well, now it's five years on, and I'm talking to Louis Douthit, who's the executive director of Play On Shakespeare. And she's going to tell me exactly what the project is. And I guess, Louis, I'll start by asking... Was it always your dream to ruin Shakespeare, or, or that a more recent goal? <laughs> yeah. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 715, Play on Shakespeare. Louis Douthit is the creator and executive director of Play On Shakespeare, a series of translations and adaptations of the entire Shakespeare canon written by some of the most interesting and talented playwrights working today. Louis and I recorded this conversation back in February of 2020, before everything shut down, and I was fascinated to learn more about this program and, and how translation and adaptation actually enables us to learn more about the original texts. Louis began our conversation by telling a bit of her origin story. I started life out as a um, playwright and director. I actually have some degrees in these things. I technically know how to do them. Um, um, but quickly realized I that cheerleading was more my forte and kind of branched off into dramaturgy, which seemed to suit my my sort of behind the scenes, you know, stage mama presence better. Um, and so I was new play girl and I approached all of these plays as new. I did not have much Shakespeare experience uh, in college or as a practitioner until I had the wonderful fortune to fall into the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in my mid thirties. So I applied my new play lens to Shakespeare because like, well, they're new plays to me and how would I approach them? So uh, uh, I, that's kind of how it started. And yeah. then, you know, who knows how we got to today. But, yeah, that's how it Well, and this is what we were talking about. It came up a lot at last, uh, the, the STA conference, Shakespeare Theater Association conference a couple of weeks ago, which is that we are all in collaboration with Shakespeare. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I think treating him as a, as a living playwright is the only way to go. Uh, and just just be glad that he's not in the room. So you don't well, I, I think that perhaps is the radical act I did. I did put a playwright in the room. Ah, with the play right? on. So can Correct. You, right. Yeah, so can right. You, I mean, that, that, that may be the only radical piece about this because, uh, ironically, uh, I have asked uh, those playwrights to look at the entire text and 
sort of examine uh, those um, maybe what I uh, <clears throat> what I call sort of the gnarly bits. Look, I've been in the rehearsal room for a long time. I know what people are saying at 16 RPMs. I don't always know what people are saying at 78 RPMs. And I don't believe that 400 years ago everybody heard every word either. So it's not about pristine clarity. But I think that they were new plays 400 years ago. And I think that there was an immediacy between actor and audience. And that's the translation that I am interested in, in carrying forward. And so, um, you know, I have participated in the slashing and burning of Shakespeare plays as a dramaturg at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I have a six-character Macbeth that I'm very proud of that's down to 90 minutes or whatever it is, and I took out Double Double Toil and Trouble, and Austin, I am still hearing about it. And that was, oh, I think it was 19 years ago, how I ruined Macbeth. Like, wow, interesting. Great title for your memoir. It's going to be, exactly, to your point, how, <laughs> yes, how well, I ruined Shakespeare. Yeah. So, hmm, I believe that uh, we shape these texts each time out, depending who's in the room and who's directing it and for what audience, in what space, you know, for, um, you know, with those artists. And that to me is one of the many reasons that these scripts have, uh, you know, continued to be so vital to us today is because of their flexibility in terms of how we can um, interpret them and use them in many different ways. So that that's kind of, I mean, yes, did I ruin it? I don't know. It's kind of ironic because um, I'm going right at text. I don't know, think when, you did. I think you ruined yeah. it in the same way that West Side Story ruined Romeo and Juliet, which is to say you didn't. Um, yeah. Uh, it still exists. The 36, there were people cry, saying, wait, is Oregon Shakespeare only going to stage these new adaptations from now? Are we no longer going to stage yeah. original, yeah. actual Shakespeare? No, of course not. That was never, never the plan as I understood it. Can you talk about how and why the project was created? I, I mean, aside from your desire to put the playwright in the room, which I think is magnificent. Well, we were um, given... Uh, an interesting proposition by a man named David Hitz, who long time um, audience patron and uh, supporter of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And he actually, even before Bill Roush, he approached Olivia Apple, the uh, artistic director before Bill and said, Hey, I would, I would uh, pay to have to uh, commission somebody to translate Shakespeare into contemporary modern English. And, and Libby was not having it. She was not, I, I, I tell a fun story about it, but it's not truthful, but it's a fun story, which is that she just said, get out of my office, which apparently is not what really happened. But I like that image. It's still a good um, story. <laughs> it's still a good story. As I said, it's a good story. Um, when Bill came, I think Dave saw an opportunity to approach, you know, another artistic director um, and made the same offer. And Bill, uh, being very enterprising and um, artistic director with, with great vision and great peripheral vision, said, hmm, interesting. And listen, Austin, I could translate that into yes very quickly. So um, as director of literary development, it, it fell in my, my lap to do. And so None of us knew what Dave was talking about. Like, translate Shakespeare? What are you talking about? That this doesn't make any sense. I mean, the original the original Dave for this company was going to be English to English. 
because I um, I had the T-shirt like the you know like I I, I was ready but not the T-shirt like the polo like the little E two E like logo I was all ready but that just that seemed just a little bit even snotty from my point of view um but uh, none of us really knew what he was talking about um you know and Dave's inspiration was reading about Shakespeare around the world mm. and when it is translated into other languages and conversations about accessibility through language, which is, it's not translated into 16th century French. Right. Uh, is there something about examining our language, uh, the contemporary English from early modern English, you know, are there ways to sort of bring that, the syntax and some of the sort of phrasing into more uh, accessible to our ears in the moment of hearing it? I mean, I think you have that wonderful thing, um, about Shakespeare on the stage, right? Isn't that, I mean, that, that is our common ground uh, that I th that think that reduce Shakespeare is also in that world, that those of us who really want to have Shakespeare on the stage and h how we receive that. So, I mean, I, I'm definitely in that camp, Austin. I'm a practitioner and um, uh, I want uh, audiences to stay up with what's happening in a play so they can have an emotional response at the end that maybe not has to be so artificially created right. or urged. Well, and, and it's, as, uh, as, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I love theatricality, but I kind of like, wow, there's, there's enough going on in Shakespeare right now. Can I just kind of focus on that? But anyway, so Dave, um, uh, agreed. So Bill said, sure, we will do this. And, and Dave agreed to do, and Bill said, I'm not really interested in the translations. I'm not sure I really understand that, but I really want adaptations, which we all kind of know how to do in every, my opinion, every Shakespeare in production is a trans is an adaptation, right? Oh, I was going to say the same uh, thing. Barely, yep. you know, my 90 minute Macbeth for sure, but I have not been in a room that we didn't cut something and say, that's gnarly. Nobody's going to get it, you know, or whatever. Um, I get all I, I get all of these things and I have done these I've done this damage. Um, so I said to myself, I don't really know what he's saying, what he wants or what he's asking for. And it doesn't seem like it would work. So I thought that uh, when Bill said, let's do five and Dave said, sure, you do a couple of yours adaptations and do a couple of mine. That's cost to do business business. Fine. I'll do it. So I said, well, I will do the. Uh, translation part first because we all know how to do adaptations kind of and I don't know what he's talking about and could we just knock this off really quickly because we'll just say yeah that didn't work moving on well you know I decided to take it very seriously and I approached my pal Kenneth Cavender who I think is a brilliant translator of Greek tragedies that seemed to be a very serious you know thing translating Greek tragedies and I thought if he would look at this as if it were source language to tar target language. If you approach it that way, what would happen? And we decided on time of Athens because we thought that perhaps no one would really care too much if we did that. That one, um, my Shakespeare mentor said to me, this is all fine and good for Pericles, but don't touch Hamlet. And I thought, oh, that's the next one I want to do, of course, but I'm contrary like that. <laughs> anyway, Kenneth did this magnificent job. And then Alabama Shakespeare produced it, and I flew to see it, and I went, oh, my God, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but there's something that was accessible in a way that made me stay longer in the, in the process of the production. 
Hi, this is Octavius Elise, longtime Bay Area playwright, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare company is online, unfortunately. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. And some brand new videos we recorded and a shot especially for right now, including our online performance as the remote Shakespeare company for our friends at the Reston Center Stage in Reston, Virginia, plus our entire archive of over 13 and a half years worth of weekly podcasts are available at our website right now. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Louis Douthat, the creator and executive director of Play on Shakespeare. And in these translations in the time and example or any of the other examples, is it these these playwrights are doing more than just stripping away the archaic cultural allusions and pop culture references that we don't know anything about. They're not merely updating those references. Well no, no. Actually they, they had um they had rules. Uh you know, and rules were meant to be yeah. Stretched and interpreted, you know, yeah. according to the playwright. I mean with thirty six writers you expect that there will be some vast interpretations that there have been, and that's been one of the exciting things about this is just like all of us entering these things, we all come away with something different. But, um, you know, there was no, um, mm, there was no rule about sort of um, what kind of language to use. Uh, that said, I asked that they keep them in 1600 time period. Hmm. Um, so there, and I do believe there's, plenty of anachronism in Shakespeare. I just don't think we know it as anachronism because it just sounds old. You know, it, it, I think 400 years ago, there had been a lot of smiling about, well, oh, yeah, that's a reference that's out of time and place, you know, kind of thing. Um, so uh, they had to wrestle with that. They had to wrestle with the these and the thous, and they had to wrestle with the gods, and they had to wrestle with um, you know, other kinds of references. And I said, you know, I don't really want them taken out and replaced. I think sometimes it's important, but not always. And again, back to, do I think that it's like for every minute of every play, do I think it should be crystal clear? I do not. Right. I don't think that that's actually the magic of Shakespeare. Um, and while these blends are um, uh, really audibly satisfying, you know, there's always a loss and again in translation, and this is no different. And it was a translate, and it is a translation exercise. Right. I understand that it's not word for word, and that's usually what our first definition is. Mm -hmm. But mine is the fourth definition of carrying forward, and I wanted to carry forward what that feeling was between actor and audience 400 years ago, and what may be the feeling that actors and audience who speak Shakespeare in other languages in other countries. Um, also have with audiences. I I I don't. I hardly speak English, so I don't know that I. Um, <laughs> I certainly cannot speak for anyone who n knows another language and has heard Shakespeare in another language. But I have been told by many people who do speak another language and heard Shakespeare first in 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 their language before hearing it in English. What a difference it was for them accessibility wise. So was there any kind of parallel or any kind of like weeding? 
I don't know. So each of them are a little bit different, like proportionally, but definitely 60, 60 to 70 percent Shakespeare. And did you find did you find that these translations um, brought out elements of the originals that had been missing or that were new and exciting? I do think that the comedies were the hard. My assumption was that the comedies would be the hardest to do. And that the histories would be kind of like easy in a way if you just let me know, you know, who the he is in that sentence. Maybe I could kind of follow it. Right. Um, And the comedies, because jokes, as you well know, uh, you know, they they're structured. Right. They got to be kind of restructured. Um, So uh, uh, what I hear better is the distinction in the language between prose and verse. I hear better. Uh, What I find is that the comedy is actually funny without gestures this may be my um my ultimate goal is no gesture shakespeare no um, no body rude gesture to yeah, signify yeah. I mean, that this it's is all a joke fine and good you can do that too but yeah. honestly the jokes are actually working when they've been reworked i think that's awesome my whole theory about shakespeare is about contrasts and certainly the contrast within the language is is it can be studied and I'm just rereading Jonathan Hope's fine work right now about grammar. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just it's built in everywhere. It's built into character. It's built into the, the structure of the plays. It's built in the structural language. And so I hear the contrast better as a way to sort of like add extra value and meaning to my experience and to use them even more metaphorically than perhaps I have in the past. Um, and then lastly, I will say that what I'm so grateful for uh, is that the moments that the playwrights chose to kind of untangle, you know, those gnar- those quote-unquote gnarly bits. Point in fact is there's a lot of uh, really useful information in those gnarly bits about character motivation and where people stand and what they believe in. And for me, just like any play, I got to kind of know where we are in the world and what, what matters and what are we going to work out. And suddenly, if I kind of know um, uh, some motivations about some characters, uh, I seem to be more engaged. I just heard a reading of Kenneth's um, Tempest the other day, and I swear I never heard that the harpy had actually anything interesting to say uh, to um, Antonio. To like say, you got to get your act together, or you're not gonna. You know, you, to be redeemed, or and I thought, what? What? Because it's always some big theatrical moment, right? That right. obscures that. But actually, point of fact is, there's a huge moment in there about like every character kind of getting their act together. And I was like, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> I'm not sure I ever really knew that. You know, so um, like with every of each one of these plays, I, I, I'm sure you have the same experience, Austin. But we always hear something different in them. You know, like, and, and months after working on them, I go back to see a run, you know, because, of course, the runs at OSF went, like, you know, are endless, it seems. Um, and I go back months later, and I go, I never heard that before. You know, I, I, that happens all the time. And that, that to me, is, is, again, what's built into these plays. And certainly we could kind of analyze how he does this, but there's just, it's not really analyzable. It's really just pure uh genius really um and that uh 
and, and even in sort of the plotting, which people like to poo-poo. But as a dramaturg, I'm here to say they are beautifully structured and that I would really love us to pay more attention to how the order of the events goes, that that is a piece of information that we don't often get to in rehearsal. And I don't know how we necessarily can deliver that theatrically, um, but it has kind of become my lifelong now is kind of like my obsession to uh, point that out. And that is the big takeaway for me is that that clearing of a couple of moments in the play, I'm like, oh, I can get behind that. I love that. I love that it leads us into a new appreciation of moments that get glossed over. I mean, like any great production of Shakespeare does that. But now you have these translations by these playwrights, and that was one of the other great things about the project, or one yes. is one of the great things about the playwrights, is that you're giving living playwrights living wages. Well, for a couple of minutes anyway, yes, yeah. I suppose, I suppose. Um, look, I, I've been, as I said, I've been in the new play business for a long time, and I think that there is no more vulnerable person than the playwright in American theater. Um, I could be not such a great dramaturg and you could be not such a great actor, but chances are we might still get work. But if a playwright's work is not well received, they don't necessarily get phone calls after that. Um, and so I have great compassion uh, for the the world of the dramaturg, I mean, sorry, of the playwright. And wherever I could, and this was one of the many reasons I wanted to be at an institution is because I wanted to be able to support writers from within as well as sort of as my pals. So when I got a chance to offer commissions to those writers, I, I made it um, a, a very, I think, respectable fee. Uh, and everybody was paid the same no matter what their experience, you know, um, as early middle career writers. <clears throat> and I added a, a dramaturg to each one of those assignments as well. And ev again, everybody, um, plus all the support that's needed, you know, the process of developing a play, good yep. grief. And while yes, the stories, we all knew them. I mean, you know, they didn't have to change, they can't change the story. It still took, you know, great actors being in a room with that playwright and a director and a draw to just kind of work through the script. And I mean, good, good grief. It couldn't have been more old school, uh, text work. These, 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 uh, workshops. And it was amazingly fun to like go back in and learn these plays in a different way. So, um, I, I have, um, I'm very proud of, of, uh, first of all, who agreed to go on this journey with me. It was just an amazing group of playwrights. Good grief. Uh, and they entered it with such humility and integrity and, and grace. I mean, it's just been extraordinary, really, Austin. Um, and um, uh, I am grateful to the Hits Foundation for being so generous to say, of course, this is, this is what should be. You know, it's been awesome. What happens to these plays now? You've broken off, Play on Shakespeare is now broken off from OSF. Can people license these scripts and produce them themselves? Yeah, they always could. Yeah, just like a new play, all the playwrights own the, their scripts, right? Yeah. I had thought about work for hire at early, and I thought, ugh, I didn't want to deal with all that material. But um, 
so and, and so we just uh, kept it. You know, they all own it. it it's, it's up to you. You know, you need to negotiate with them the rights to do to to perform these things. Thirteen of them have been performed already. I think quite beautifully in every case. Um, the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies has offered to publish all of them. We just signed a contract. And so probably in a year, you'll begin to see very modestly priced. We all agreed that they we want them to be modestly priced. Additions should start popping out, but they're, they're ready to rock and roll now. I mean, I, uh, you may know about a festival that we did in June of 19 at the Classic Stage in which we read all 39 of them in some kind of chronolo chronological order. Uh, you know, Louis, uh, you know, very basic research on what chronicle, chronological order would be. But um, uh, I, I wanted to test them. Right. I, yeah. I'm interested in them being perf performable, uh, performable companion pieces. That was the charge. And they're performable. I just proved that. Um, and now it's just really great. People want to look at them. There's a lot of different ways to use them. Uh, I have been asking uh, theaters, if they would read the, um, the, the translation as kind of part of their process, there's something kind of uh, freeing uh, about uh, everybody reading this translation as if for the first time, because it's new to everybody. You know, even though you'd played Prospero 14 times, you hadn't had your mouth wrapped around Kenneth's Prospero. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like, and there's something kind of beautiful about everybody sort of like, well, what is this thing? which also is a, a replication of what I think happened 400 years ago. I mean, nobody did research on these plays before he went to see them. Right. And certainly the actors are like, what? You know, what are you doing? Here? What? So I, I, I love that process. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. You can find more information about Play on Shakespeare's plays and playwrights at playonfestival.org. Then send us your artisanal adaptations via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Play on Shakespeare on Twitter and Instagram at PlayOnShakes. Thanks as always to No Translation Necessary Matthew Croak, Web of Services by Ginger Power Limited, and music by John Weber and Garage Band. A random fan shout out this week goes to Cliff Harris. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Octavio Solis, whose adaptation of Shakespeare's Edward III was commissioned and developed by Play On Shakespeare. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 715 2045ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. It's still an odd thing, like, what? You have to... Royalties, it's Shakespeare. It's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not. It's this contemporary blend, right? It's a little Merlot, a little Cabernet. You know, it's Magdalia Cruz's blend. I'm like, you know. I love you know. that notion that it's not high culture, it's not low culture. It's a respectable house red. It sits on the table. Yeah, I like that. That's good. It's yeah. for everybody. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.